What a great truth. I am His, and because I am His, He is mine. What a joy to be held by God. We love Him, right? John says, because He first loved us. What a joy it is to know that truth. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 25 to 30 as we wrap up this portion of Jesus' dialogue with the religious leaders after the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter 8, verses 25 through 30. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Gracious Father, we come to you once again. Open your word before us. What we cannot possibly comprehend apart from your work, we pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus, in the preaching of this text. May we see the mission of Christ so clearly unfolded before our eyes that we leave believing. And because we believe, may we leave rejoicing. Rejoicing in Him and in Him alone. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever asked a question that you really didn't want to hear the answer to? I think we all have. We've asked questions knowing what the answer was going to be, but we asked the question anyway and heard what we expected to hear, didn't we? Or perhaps... Another question for you this morning as we get started. Have you ever asked a question and received an answer that you were not expecting? You were quite sure that a certain situation was going to turn out in a certain way and you asked the question and to your delight or perhaps to your dismay, you received a different answer to that question and it drastically alters Your thinking, it drastically alters perhaps even your life when you receive that answer. Because as we look at the text this morning, that is absolutely the case of what is transpiring here as Jesus continues to dialogue back and forth with these Jewish leaders and by proxy the bystanders around the temple's outer court on the heels of this great feast that has just concluded. Now, I know that most sermons that you've heard in your life probably have three points and a poem, right? Sometimes they're alliterated, but this morning I'm going to break the mold. There's one point to the sermon. There's only one point to the sermon this morning. And that is the single mind of God. The single mind of Jesus Christ. If we had to describe the passage this morning and we had to synthesize it down to that singular point, that point would be this, and it's found in verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. For I always, do you hear that? Do you hear the singular focus of Jesus? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What was Jesus' heart while he was here on earth? What was Jesus' mind 
to always do the things that were pleasing to the one who not only sent him, but to the one who was always with him. Would that not be a wonderful thing to say? I always do, Lord, the things that are pleasing to you. Wouldn't it be a wonderful epitaph on your gravestone someday? He always did or she always did what was pleasing to the Lord. I would love for that to be said of me, but it never will be. And it won't be said of you either. Because we suffer from sin, from from the divided affections. We don't always do the things that are pleasing to God. Let's be honest. We don't even always think about what is pleasing to God. We don't always think about God. How about that? To, 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 To simplify this even further, we don't even always think of God, but Jesus did. Not only did he think about God, he thought about all the things God desired and commanded of him, and he did them. We suffer from spiritual ADD. From one thing to the next. From one of our passions and our desires and our interest to the next. Percentage-wise, it would be terrifying for us to know how often we spent thinking of ourselves rather than thinking of God, wouldn't it? I don't know that that's a statistic that anybody wants to see. But Jesus can say that the glory of his coming and the glory of his ministry is that Jesus never failed to always do that which was pleasing to the Father. And because Jesus is always pleasing to the Father, he never suffered the divided affections that we do. He never suffered the rogue tangents that we go on. He never uh, suffered from the self-contrived exploits to promote himself or his pleasures. He only did one thing. To please the Father. And not only to please the Father. Are you listening? He did it to please the Father on your behalf. He knew. He knows that you will never please the Father. It's not just that we don't always please the Father. It is that in our own power, because of our sin, we never please the Father. But Jesus, on our behalf, always pleased the Father. At every moment, in every situation, Jesus pleases the Father. And I want you to grasp this morning the enormity of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Again, this is only one point. There is only one point and that you have heard it over and over again already. Jesus has always pleased the Father. So if you're a note taker this morning, your job just got infinitely easier. One point, Jesus always pleased the Father. My roast won't even be finished in the oven when we get home. This is going to end so quickly. Now hang on. Before you start texting people telling them that you've just heard the shortest sermon in Colonial Bible Church history... There may only be one point to the sermon, but the implications and the applications are many. The outflow from Jesus always pleasing the Father is an infinite well of goodness. And we see it and we hear it here in the text. I want you to notice the question that the Pharisees begin with as they lead up to this point in verse 25. Now let's back up to verse 24, because this is all one conversation. This is how it ended last week. Therefore, Jesus says, I say to you, speaking to these same people, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to Him, Who are you? You say that we must believe that you are he. Who are you? And to capture the contrast that is present here that that makes what Jesus says so potent in the rest of this passage, 
We need to begin with, with the question that his interrogators are posing. Certainly they are familiar with the formula. That rings true in their ear. We, we know this formula, I am. It's foundational to who we are spiritually. It's foundational to who we are nationally. God has revealed to Moses that I am who I am. We know that. This sounds familiar to us. But who are you? Who are you, Jesus? You don't seem to be, in our thinking, the I am of Exodus 3.14. Nevertheless, you say to us, I am he. Their response to Jesus in this question has been variously interpreted. In fact, some of the older Bible translations that are really difficult to even find anymore rendered it this way. Why should we speak to you? Why is it that we should even listen to what you're saying, Jesus? It's a rather backhanded way of insulting him and yet asking the question, well, who are you? Edward Klink in his commentary notes that their question is both a question and a rebuke. The majority of texts seem to have sanitized it a bit as it's rendered here. We don't get the sarcasm and the rebuke that comes across as it did to Jesus. Who are you? We, we, we might say it this way in colloquial English today. Who do you think you are? Big shot? Who do you think you are? Somebody ever come up to you and address you in a certain way, and you say, hey, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right? Leon Morris, in his commentary, points out the fact that in asking this question, they are indeed trying to jab at Jesus. The, the you is placed in the emphatic position. You? Who are you? Who do you think you are to be saying such things? That's really what they're asking. And the things that they're referring to are the things that Jesus has just said in verse 24. That they will die in their sins and face judgment. Who died and made you God? Who are you to claim to know these things? Who are you to have the power to be able to do those things? We're not taking your statements lying down, Jesus. If you're going to say it, you're going to have to prove it. They're doubling down in their hostility to him. Some might read it because it has been so sanitized in modern English translations. Who are you? Oh, look, good, they're finally interested. No, they're not. They're doubling down in their hostility. They're doubling down in their rejection of Jesus. But for those of us who believe, this is hard to hear. It, it might be hard to hear because it may be being said by our own loved ones. This may be being communicated by people we hold near and dear to our lives. Who is this Jesus? with a tone of derision in our voice. And, and we who have read the New Testament and we who believe, we want to scream out, don't we? we? We want to yell out to Him, He is the Messiah of God. He is the promised one from God. And if you know what's good for you, you will fall on your knees in humility before Him. You will quit impetuously questioning Him and you will believe. Isn't that what we want to say? We want them to believe. We want to grab them by their togas and shake them and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Because what he said is true. You will die in your sins unless you believe. Believe. Oh, these people, they have zeal without knowledge. They are zealous without knowledge. And what is more, what little knowledge they have is useless. 
for the situation they find themselves in. How do we know when our zeal and our knowledge might be useless? Lest we end up on the receiving end of verse 24 ourselves, that it may be us who are in danger of dying in our sins. How do we know that our zeal, how do we know that our knowledge is useless zeal and knowledge? Well, simply put, if your knowledge does not lead you to a place of humble acknowledgement as to the person of Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as the Savior for your sin, your sin. Let me say it again, your sin, your zeal and your knowledge are useless if all you enjoy doing is pronouncing judgment upon the sins of others and telling them how desperately they need Jesus while you yourself walk in proud impiety. See, this was Isaiah. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, the, 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 the priest, the, the, the spiritual leader of Israel in his day, walked throughout Israel, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But in chapter 6, everything changes. Because he encounters God upon his throne. And no longer is it woe to you, it is Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I didn't come to this understanding because I had an epiphany, because I read a book, because I went to a conference. I know this because my eyes have seen the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of Glory, the holiness of God upon His throne. At that moment, Isaiah's knowledge and Isaiah's zeal become useful. But prior to that, like the Pharisees that Jesus is confronting here, they have useless, worthless, and in fact harmful knowledge that only inflames their pride and hardens their heart in their man-centered legalism of imagined paths that please God. Hey, if you'll do this, you'll be pleasing to God. If you'll do this, you'll be pleasing to God. Brothers and sisters, don't ever let yourself be found in that position. The only way to be pleasing to God is to be in His Son. God will never be pleased with us apart from Jesus Christ. If you ever tell anyone that the way to be right with God or the way that God will be pleased with you, and that sentence does not end with believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have zeal without knowledge and useless knowledge, worse than that, harmful knowledge. Their minds had been shaped by men, but not the wisdom of God's revelation. Who are you? The answer that Jesus goes on to give is both complex, that is to say, multifaceted, and it is stunning in its content. It is complex, there is so much to be considered about it. It is stunning and beautiful and glorious and powerful in its content. And notice how Jesus answers him. Who am I? Well, let me ask you a question. What have I been saying since the beginning? We're told that you're never supposed to answer a question with a question, right? That's poor form. But Jesus does it. You want to know who I am? Let me ask you a question. What have I been saying from the beginning? Now, here's a question for you. What beginning is Jesus referring to? What beginning is Jesus referring to? We need to ask that question of the text this morning so that we come to a clear understanding and avoid the the, the misunderstanding that these people have. And we go back to understanding the beginning that Jesus refers to in two ways. 
Number one, there is a beginning of beginnings. And we find that in John chapter 1. So go back to John chapter 1 with me. There is a beginning of all beginnings. Jesus' answer, again, it's complex. It's, there, is, there are multiple parts to his answer. And he says, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? What's he referring to? He is referring simply to this, for starters. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the beginning where we start. You heard it here first. I am he who was and is and will always be. I am the eternally self-existent God of Abraham, of Isaac, of, of Jacob, and of Moses on the mountain. In Exodus 3.14, when I revealed myself to him as I am. This is my beginning. There is a beginning in, in the sense of origin and the sense of source. He who had no beginning is the beginning. But then secondly, he is the beginning by being manifest in humanity. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. And that word which has always been in the beginning from the beginning became flesh. And we and, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I've been trying to tell you, men, you women, anyone who will listen. There is a time when I spoke to you about the cosmological, the source of the eternality of my existence. I have always been. But there is a time when I told you about the historical realities when I entered into time. That's just mind-blowing. The God who is outside of time entered time. And I spoke to you of that as well. I became flesh filled with grace and truth so that you might know God. Which according to Jesus' earlier statement from last week, they not only don't know Him, they don't know God at all. They're completely ignorant. The issue is not that Jesus has been coy or unclear in stating the answer to their question. He has declared with great clarity the reality of who He is over and over and over again. Jesus bears the authority as the eternally self-existent one. He bears the authenticity belonging to Jesus alone because he has taken on flesh and revealed God to man. John understands this, not only here in John's gospel, he understands it in his letters as well. 1 John 1.1, listen to how John opens his first epistle. What was from the beginning? That sounds like John 1.1, doesn't it? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that sounds like John 1.14. He came in humanity, in history, and in time. Jesus says, you want to know who I am? What have I been saying to you from the beginning? The beginning both of eternity and the beginning of my humanity here. Who is Jesus? Not only is he the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, but he is also the perfect and obedient son. After all, let's repeat our only point this morning. He always pleased the Father. He's not only the second member of the Godhead. He is the perfect and obedient son who has come into history, come into time to do one thing, to do that which is always pleasing to the Father. I want you to notice Jesus then moves on. Look at your Bibles. 
He answers the question, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Keyword beginning. But listen, I am of the same mission as the Father. You want to know who I am? I'm the man who has come with the same mission of God himself, the Father whom you claim to know. He says in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Jesus had many things to say. Not only to them, but to you and I, to every sinner who stands in denial or opposition to him. And that's been true of all of us at some point. It may still be true of some of you today. That you stand in opposition and denial of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I have many things to say to you. What things, Jesus? Words of judgment. Notice what he says. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. This is not referring to the the judgment of discernment. This is referring to eschatological judgment. The final word on your condemnation. The life sentence to hell for eternity that you will endure. I have many things to say regarding that. Because I am a judge. Regardless of how contemporary Christianity has rewritten the personhood of Jesus Christ. He is a judge. And he says, I have many things to say regarding that. And to judge concerning you. But, he says. But. I have something else to say first. And this is where the application of the question really begins to hit home. But he who sent me is true. I could speak of judgment about you. I could heap condemnation upon you right now. I could destroy you right now. But. That one conjunction. Makes eternity what eternity will be. We all deserve the wrath of God in its fullest measure the moment we are conceived. We do not earn God's wrath and judgment incrementally because of what we do. We incur God's wrath and judgment immediately upon our conception because we are Adam's offspring and inheritors of a sin nature. Romans 5. So Jesus says, I could unload, but he who sent me is true. You've been in those kinds of conversations with people, haven't you? Where they're speaking and then they say, but, and you say, but what? But what? Why did you just say but? Why don't you put that little conjunction there? What else are you holding back? Jesus says, I could pour out judgment upon you. But he who sent me is true. Everything that I say, everything that I do is predicated upon the father who sent me and he is true. He is right. Remember, I've only come to do what is always pleasing to him. Everything that the Father says and does is true because he is true. And I just want to make it clear. Jesus just wants to emphasize that when he does finally speak in judgment, he he will do so because the Father has also told him to speak that way. But, until then... I have something else to say. He who sent me, he who established the mission, he who established the parameters of my mission, he is true. Therefore, those things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. 
Leon Morris in his commentary says, Judgment is necessarily involved in all right teaching and action. And preeminently is this the case where the mission of the Son is concerned. Jesus says, that's only part of it for me to speak in judgment. But he who sent me is true. And he has sent me not to proclaim judgment at this time, eschatologically, finally, fully, what you deserve. I have another message. And in verse 27, we have a little interruption, a very quick statement that really, I think, is meant to invoke some amount of pity for these poor people. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. For us, it's more than obvious. For those of us who believe, it's more than obvious that Jesus is who he says he is. It's like crystals in their purest and clearest form. It's like a perfect diamond with absolute clarity that Jesus is from the Father and speaks of the Heavenly Father here. And yet, in their sinfulness, in their true humanity, in their worldly thinking, these Jewish people still don't get it. They're unable to comprehend the words of Jesus, and they are instead engaging in a prolonged exercise of missing the point. I mean, we are eight chapters into missing the point. And I think that most of us look at this and say, I know how that feels. It was a long time before the Lord opened my eyes. I know what it feels like to be lost like that. I remember that. I remember the heartache and the fear and the doubt and the anxiety that comes from not having my eyes opened. And oh, but boy, do I remember when God opened my eyes. Boy, do I remember that little conjunction, but. And that moment when God revealed in all absolute clarity what it is that Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus continues undeterred in verse 28. Would you look at verse 28 with me? So Jesus said to them, Jesus is not just a man. Because no man would abide by this type of insulting questioning over and over. We just say, I'm done. What do you mean, who am I? I've told you, I've shown you. There is going to be judgment, and when it's spoken, it will be right because it will be what God has told me to say in that moment. But until then, there's something else you need to know. Verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift Him up, then you will know that I am He. It will become obvious to you who I am. I've heard from the Father, this is why I'm here now. This is the truth you are to understand now. That I will be lifted up and your judgment will be poured out upon me if you believe. But if not, I will speak to you in judgment later. Judgment is necessarily, as Moore said, involved in all right teaching. Including the mission of Jesus. So this may seem like a moot point to you, but it's not. Too many people in evangelical churches today think that the mission of Jesus here on earth was all about love. Love with no judgment. Love without demands. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, God sent His own Son Into the world to absorb your judgment. 
In some sense, we could say the earthly mission of Jesus was all about judgment, judgment upon him in our place so that we don't have to face it. God the Father absolutely made the mission of Jesus about judgment. Judgment for our sin upon him. And they are currently in danger of that judgment themselves because they are rejecting the one who can and will stand in their place. And Jesus says there's going to come a day when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. You're going to know it. When you, because of your sin, Lift me up. You are going to know. You are going to see a demonstration of judgment. It's an obvious reference to his crucifixion. One writer says this, While the world intends the cross to be the world's final word against Jesus. Ha! We showed you. In reality, it will be God's final word about Jesus. The coronation of Jesus as divine authority and judge. And I would add, as verse 30 makes obvious, also Savior. Most commentators agree that there's a double meaning here. The lift up meaning by first usage the crucifixion. But by a second meaning the exaltation that Jesus would receive as the accepted son of God. In their attempt Jesus says to destroy me you're actually exalting me. You thought you did it for evil. Hey it's like Joseph God meant it for good. You thought you had the final word and the last laugh. Not so. God means it for good. To save the many, verse 30, who come to believe in him. It includes all of us today who believe in him. They actually exalt him. That's why Jesus says, hey, when you lift me up, you're going to know. I will be exalted. The God-man who took upon himself our humanity, suffered in our place, was lifted up on an instrument of execution for maximum humiliation in the ancient world, instead receives highest praise and exaltation. Philippians 2, 8 and 11, listen to Paul's words. I know you know them, but listen again. Being found in an appearance, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, are you ready? Death on a cross. For this reason, what reason? Death on a cross? God has also highly exalted him. So that... On him, the name which is above every name is bestowed, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He said, but, but not all of these people Jesus addresses acknowledge him. Not all of them know in that sense. Oh, they do. They do now. Every knee will bow. Every knee, not just those who believe, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Both those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, both in the heaven of heavens, both in the the, the planetary creation of God and those in hell, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Messiah, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. And you're going to know. But some of you are going to know that in a different way than others know. 
Because as verse 30 indicates, some will know, as do many of you know, that this has been proven to be true, that Jesus is who he says he is. Because as Edward Clink says, the judge here decided to receive upon himself the guilt of the defendant. He was lifted up for us. And we who have been born again know the feeling. We know the truth. We know the change that comes when the judge removes the guilt. And it's taken from us. The very ones who lifted him up know what it is to be set free by him. And we know that he is true. Imagine that picture. You can't, you, we can't even begin to imagine it in our culture. A judge is sitting in his courtroom. In comes the defendant, charged with capital murder, found guilty of capital murder, found guilty of not only capital murder, but every other statute on the books. And his sentence is death. And upon the pronouncement of the sentence, the judge stands and turns his back and places his own hands behind his back to be taken out of the courtroom to suffer the punishment in place of the guilty. That is what Christ is doing. You're going to lift me up. You're going to commit the sins that deserve the cross. But I'm going to the cross for you. I'm going to take your punishment for you. And then you will know. That I am He. To some extent, this came to fruition at the day of Pentecost. Didn't it? In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching to these same people, these same Jewish people. And he says to them, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord, that is to say, Messiah, and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You did it. You lifted him up. You're the guilty party. And the men of Israel when they heard this were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. And one can imagine it through terror and through tears. Brethren what shall we do? We stand guilty as charged. What do we do? And Peter doesn't say, I'm glad you asked. Here's a list. He says, repent. And be baptized because of the remission of your sins. Because you believe. Be forgiven. On the last day, Zechariah 12.10 records what it will sound like. What it will look like. When the house of Israel realizes what they have done. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The spirit of grace and of supplication. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They're going to look at Jesus and they're going to see Jesus. And they're going to understand that they lifted him up. Just like he says in John. They're going to understand they put him to death for their sins. Not his own. And they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him. Like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Jesus says you're going to know. Now or later. You will know that I am he. And I have done nothing. On my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. There will never be any separation. Listen. There will never, ever, ever be any separation between Jesus and the Father. Never. So be very careful as you try to think through things about the cross. And did God die at the cross? No, God didn't die at the cross. Well, did God reject the Son and abandon the Son at the cross? You better hope not. Because that would mean there's a fracture and a division within the Trinity. That cannot be. 
And Jesus evidences that here by saying, I always do, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I always speak the things as the Father has taught me. I do everything. I don't become rejected by the Father. You've been rejected, and I'm suffering the results of you being rejected. But I am God. I'm never rejected. Because I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Why would God reject him if he's always pleased with him? He can't. He can't. Even in his lifting up, he's not rejected by the Father. He's rejected in his humanity as the sin bearer for our sins, not himself. In his mission, he hangs lifted up by cruel and sinful men in order to save. In order to save. He's accomplished the mission of the Father. That's why he says earlier, but. I I could speak of judgment now, but I won't. Because the mission of the Father is to send me to seek and to save the lost. And that's what I'm doing. I'm here to seek and to save the lost. I'm here to be lifted up so that you might come to know that I am He. And I'm not, I'm not speaking in terms of salvation or in judgment on my own initiative, but as the Father Himself taught me. Hey, in verse 29, men, you need to realize this. Women, children, you need to realize this. He who sent me is with me. He who sent me is with me. I'm not separated from the Father. He goes on and says, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. It's going to look like I've been abandoned by God. I haven't. I'm here. The Father's there. But we're not separated. We are still one. Even here, He is with me. The Spirit of God is upon me. At his baptism in Luke 4, as he reads the passage from Isaiah explaining how that prophecy applies to him, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to carry out my ministry. The Spirit who goes with him into the wilderness for temptation to strengthen him. He is with me. The Godhead is still together. He's not left me alone. Why? I've done everything pleasing that he has demanded. A mission that from eternity past, obviously, then in verse 30 includes a number of those Jewish people who stood around and heard that day. The mission is not judgment. The mission for now is salvation. You need to know that. You need to know that's why I'm here. And that day, many believed in Jesus. As many as were appointed just as an axe unto eternal life, received them. Some of these people woke up this morning. Can you imagine? Just as the day you were saved, you woke up one morning not knowing that today would be the day of salvation for you. These people got up, went to the temple that morning, no clue about the life transformation that was about to happen. God grants faith and many came to believe in him. The judgment that was due to be spoken against them by the son is instead transferred to the son on their behalf and they recognize the significance of what Jesus is saying and they believe him. So I want you to notice one last thing. The question in verse 25 that was meant to deride and mock and rebuke and discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people results in the salvation of many. Who does that? Only God. Only God. 
We're going to mock you. We're going to tear you down. We're going to make sure no one believes anything you say. But many believed in him. Against all odds. Judgment was pronounced, and it is still pronounced today, but it is pronounced with that grand conjunction, but. There's coming a time when that conjunction will no longer be useful. It will just be unmitigated judgment for those who have not believed. But for those who believe, oh, What a glorious truth that Jesus has come to have your judgment and mine who believe laid upon him so that we never in eternity, and that's a long time, think about eternity, we will never face those charges ever again. There is no double indemnity with God, no double jeopardy with God. He'll never bring up what is past because it's been laid perfectly upon the perfect son who has offered a perfect payment. Which bystander are you? Are you the one questioning? Or are you the one believing? Believing in the one who always pleases the Father. Let's pray. Father, may your goodness be known among all your people. May your goodness be known this morning, even to those who are here who have yet to believe. May today be the day they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, just as these people in verse 30 did. May today be the day of salvation for some who have thus far rejected and mocked and scoffed and held out excuses Eliminate those, Lord, and those who are in such a category and save them this day, we pray, for the glory of King Jesus. And may we leave here humbled by the realities of all that Christ has accomplished for us. So that it might be said of us someday, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of us but because we are in the good and faithful servant who has always been pleasing to you, Father. So give us great rejoicing in these truths as we leave this morning. And Christ be continually magnified in all of us. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.